All right, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. You know, this is kind of a strange story. It's, it's not a story that we typically connect with in our daily lives. There's just so much about this story that just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's kind of confusing. There's demons and there's pigs and there's all of this weird stuff that's going on. And, and, and I don't really want it to get very confusing for us, all right? So I want it to be a simple as possible, okay? Because at the heart of this story, in Mark chapter five, with all of its quirkiness, with all of its strangeness, it's one of those stories in scripture that helps us see the heart of Jesus for humanity. It's one of those stories that helps us see Jesus enter into the brokenness of people's lives and offer them the thing that they can't offer themselves and help them, helping them to become the people that they can't become on their own, which is people who are free. Okay, so this story in Mark chapter five is about freedom. It's pretty simple. It's about freedom. That's what Mark chapter five is all about, freedom. So next week is the five-year anniversary of one of the most significant events of my life. Uh, it's definitely not the most joyful event. It's, it's really maybe not even the most life-changing event, but it's one of those moments that I look back on and I see has shaped so much of the way that I view how Jesus enters in to the oppression and to the despair of humanity and is starting to pull people's hearts towards him. So about five years ago, I got a call from my dad. And he began to tell me that the, the previous night before, my brother had died from a drug overdose. And I, rem I remember being hit by a ton of bricks. I mean, this was one of the hardest things in my, in my life to deal with. I mean, my brother, he was one of the strongest people that I had ever known. I knew that he struggled with addiction, but I didn't realize how deeply the addiction had control over his life. You know, I, I just, I couldn't understand why a world would push people like my brother deeper and deeper into the chains and the shackles of the things that would lead to their grave. I was mad, I was confused. And I really began to go through this season of my life where I started wrestling with God, asking him questions like, why would you do this? Why would you do this, God? There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of frustration. And the more I, I pushed into that pain, the more I pushed into that frustration, the more I saw that the people around me in the world had a very similar narrative like my brother. There were thousands of people who were struggling with addictions. But not just addictions, there are people who are struggling with physical and spiritual and emotional oppression. And there was all these things that I began to see in my world, anger and jealousy and rage and abuse, and there was so much that was going on in my world around me. And all of these questions of why began to surface. Why, God? Why would you let something like this happen in our world? And it was in those questions of why that God began to work on my heart. He began to speak a truth into my heart that took me a really long time to fully understand and even fully believe to be true. But it's this amazing and beautiful truth that the grave is not the final resting place that we thought it once was. 
that in the midst of all of the pain and the suffering and the oppression of this world, Jesus has come alongside of it and he is beginning to paint this alternative reality that he is calling people into. And that the truest reality of this world, more true than our pain, more true than the oppression, is that every purpose of God in this world, every intention of Jesus for humanity has, been me has meant to deliver us from a bondage that we may not be aware of and to propel us into a freedom that we cannot imagine. And that's why stories like Mark chapter five are so important for us today in this world. Because in stories like this, Jesus begins to reveal to us that our lives no longer have to end in the grave of our bondage and chains, but that freedom comes. Freedom comes as Jesus begins to take hold of our heart and he begins to strip away the things that we were never created to possess, to be brought down by. And so let's dive into Mark chapter five. We're gonna read the first eight verses together. And it reads, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one can bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And this is the word of God from Mark chapter five. So I grew up in Oregon, and every year around Memorial Day, my family would take a trip with, with our church to a state park that was nearby. And this park had this river in it, which we loved to play in. It was one of my favorite places grow, to go growing up. You know, but one of the defining characteristics of this river was how strong the current was. And so periodically along the way, there would be these huge rapids. And so, one of the years when I was about eight or nine, we went out to this camp, we went out to this park, and there was a group of college students that came with our church. And so the college students decided that they were gonna try to go rafting down the river. So as an eight-year-old, I was thinking, yeah, of course, that sounds great. I'm gonna go with them. Okay. <laughs> and so I asked my dad and I said, hey, can I go rafting with these college students? And he told me no. And he told me some reasons, and, and to, to this day, I really believe that they're kind of really lame reasons, you know, because he told me things like, you don't have any life jackets, you don't have a raft, it would, it would be unsafe for you to go. And you know, as an eight-year-old boy, things like no life jackets and no rafts and being unsafe, these are just obstacles in the way of the fun that I was wanting to have, right? And so, of course, my dad, he tells me no. And so he and my mom, they went back up to our campsite and I stayed down with the college students with very specific instructions to not go down the river. 
And so with the, the collective decision-making abilities of four college students and one eight-year-old, we decided to completely ignore my dad and we decided to ignore the fact that we didn't have life jackets and we decided to ignore the fact that we didn't even have a raft and we started to build ourselves a raft, which is always a bad idea. So we got these five inner tubes and we found some rope that was on the beach. I mean, this wasn't our rope, I don't even know where it came from. And so we started tying these five inner tubes together and this was our raft. And so we got in the raft and if you know anything about rafting, you don't put out into the middle of a rapid. You put out into the calm part of the river. And so we got into the river and I'm sitting there looking around and it's calm and I'm going, what, is the, what, what was the concern? This is nothing, this is easy. And then I began to hear it. And if you've been rafting, you know the sound that I heard because it's, it's that deep, slow roar of the river taunting you for making such a stupid decision to go down in a raft that you built with really poor rope. And so within three minutes, I fully understood the concern that my dad had because we, we hit this massive boulder and I mean, this boulder tore our raft apart like it had tissue paper holding it together. And I mean, every one of us went flying into the river, arms and legs flailing everywhere. Nobody's sure what's going on. And I remember this arm just grabs me. And I don't even know if this arm is still attached to another human being. And I didn't even really care at the moment because the only thing that I was thinking was, don't die. <laughs> don't die. You're eight years old. You have so much life left to live. <laughs> and there was that moment where I was just like grasping for air. The, the surface of the water was up here and I'm down here and I'm taking in mouthfuls of water. And I just remember sitting back thinking, well, okay. This is it. This is how I go. It'll make a good story someday. But I remember just as, as suddenly as we were thrown off the raft, the shore came. And the five of us were thrown onto the shore, and we began to look at each other to see if, if all of our limbs were still there and if everybody was still okay. And I just remember this feeling of relief and peace as I was out of the river and I was, at, in, I was in safety. And I looked up and I see my dad staring back at me with that look that said, yeah, you thought the river was bad. <laughs> and so all of that fear and worry that rushed back over me as I knew the next scene of my life was gonna be far worse than the scene down the river. And so this is, the, this is the reality that the disciples are finding themselves in as they are leaving the storms of the sea. They were afraid. And they land on the shore. And I can imagine just this feeling of relief, this sigh of, yes, okay, the storms are behind us. Jesus took care of the storms. But not only that, the potential for further storms is now behind us as we have landed on dry ground. And they look up to see that Jesus has led them into a situation that would stretch them further than the storms of the sea ever could. Because they begin to realize, they begin to see that the physical storms of life so many times mask a battle that is waging within humanity that have implications far greater than physical harm and death. They see this man 
This man who was possessed by demons, by evil spirits, by evil influences that are controlling him. And they realize that this man's journey is a reflection of so many people's journeys. It's a reflection of our journey to a degree. And so I want to sit in the midst of this man's story for just a little bit. Because I think as we unpack this man's story, we're going to see a lot of ourselves in it. We're going to find ourselves sitting in the midst of some really painful things. And then we're going to see Jesus come in and do what only Jesus can do, which is offer freedom. And so this man, he was a man who... He was causing so much chaos and so much commotion in the town that the townspeople, they look at this man and the only thing that they can do to respond is to begin to bind him, to put chains on his hands, to put irons on his feet. They send him to live in the tombs with the dead. They don't know what to do with this man. This was a man who was running around the streets naked, screaming, cutting himself, causing so much turmoil. But the thing I want you to see about this man is that he was a man who was not born being possessed by these evil spirits. He was not created to have these things controlling him and influencing his life. And yet the reality of this man's situation, the burden of his chains made him so undesirable that the only response that the people could give was to try to control him and to contain him and to confine him. And when that didn't work, they sent him out into the tombs to live among the dead. This man was at the lowest point of his life. His friends and his family, his town had abandoned him. He was alone. He was scared. And so you might be thinking, man, this man's life Man's life is bad, but it's just not quite a reflection of my own life. I have never been chained. I've never been made to live in the tombs. I haven't been cast aside. But the thing I want you to see about this man's story is that Mark chapter five is not the entirety of who this man was. Because this was somebody's son. This was somebody's friend. This was a man who had hopes and dreams. He was probably married. He had children. We don't know where he lived. We don't know what he did for his occupation. But the thing that we know is that he was not born with these evil influences fighting for control of his life. In fact, quite the opposite. He was born with the imprint and the DNA of God. And yet somewhere along the way, these things began to seep into his life and they began to control him like a cancer. And you know, I think in that, we can all relate. We all know what it's like to have influences that are fighting to control us that we don't want to control us. We all know what it's like to, to see and to witness and to maybe even feel the oppression of the world around us. We know what it's like to have sexual addiction. We know what, it's, what it looks like to have abuse in our past. We know what it's like to have anger and rage and jealousy. 
We know what it's like to live in fear and anxiety. We struggle with our self-image and we struggle to be loved. We don't even think that we're lovable. These are the things that we struggle with so much. And yet these things, they don't just hit us in the face right from the beginning and take control. Sometimes they do, but so often these are things that just slowly creep into our lives and they begin to take control. And then everything that we know about ourselves becomes defined by these things. And we have a saying at my house. Started out as just kind of a joke between me and my wife but it has become a pillar of our home. And the, and the saying that we have is just simply, people change. And so my wife, she'll remind me every now and then of really dumb things that I've done in, in my life. Things like, hey, you know, she'll say, Jared, you remember, you remember when we were first married and I made meatloaf for you? And you told me never to make meatloaf again because it didn't taste like your mother's. I know it was stupid and dumb. If you're getting married, please don't make those mistakes. And so just kind of in a fun way, I know it doesn't sound fun, but it is. In a fun way, she'll remind me of those things. And then I get to tell her, you know what, Laura, people change. <laughs> people change. <laughs> you know, but this, this thing that started out as kind of a joke, and it really is a joke, okay? I know it sounds kind of mean, but it is a joke. It has become a pillar of our home. Because we believe that when Jesus begins to take hold of people's lives, that they will be changed. When Jesus becomes a part of our lives, when he begins to take hold of our heart, we will not remain the same. He will take us on a journey, and he will change us from the people that we used to be and into the people that we were meant to become. And yet so often along the way in that journey with Jesus, we begin to let our guard down and the people that we are being changed out of begins to surface up again and it makes an appearance. And so just this week, I'm preparing for this sermon and the last couple of weeks have been some of the busiest of my life as we've been looking towards the future as we're moving to Seattle and planting churches and I've been speaking at many different places and we've had people in our homes who wanna be a part of our team and it's all been such great things but it's been, it's been a lot. And so when I get stressed, I tend to let my guard down and when I let my guard down, the person that God has changed me from begins to make an appearance in my life and it changes the way that I interact with my family, it changes the way that I treat my children. And it's not like these are really big and bad, abusive or anything like that. It's just that the person that I used to be is not the person that I'm becoming. And I don't want him to make an appearance anymore. I don't want to allow him to control me the way that he did before. And yet so often, this is our story, right, with Jesus? We move along in our journey with Jesus and the people that Jesus is changing us out of makes an appearance and they be begins to control us again. It begins to pull us down and bind us. But I'm here to tell you that we were never meant to be controlled by these things. We were not created to be controlled by the oppression of this world. In fact, quite the opposite. We were created. When we were born, we, the hand of God came down and imprinted us with his DNA. And yet so often, the things that pull us away from the, what God intended us for us to be 
is waging battle within us, is fighting for control of who we are. And you know, sometimes the weight of that oppression has been pushed so deep within who we are that it becomes the defining characteristics of our lives. It is the thing that we begin to know ourselves by. And we can't possibly imagine a life where we are free. So a couple years ago, I was with a friend of mine who planted a church in Portland, Oregon. And he was telling me this story of a girl who was uh, this lady who was in his church, and she had been coming to his church for several weeks in a row, and he was preaching this series of sermons on the worth and value of humanity, that Jesus sees humanity as so valuable that he is willing to give up everything to be with us, that he sent Jesus to come down to this earth to die so that we might live, and it's this reality that we are worth everything to God, and this is the series of sermons that he was preaching, and he couldn't understand why this lady wasn't taking a step in faith, wasn't going along on her journey with Jesus, and she began to let him in on the story of her life, that when she was a young girl, she had been sold into human trafficking for $15,000, and so the narrative of her entire life was that her worth and her value had a dollar sign attached to it. And so when she heard of a God who values human beings so much that he was willing to send Jesus and that Jesus is offering freedom and it's free, it was too much for her to bear. The weight of the oppression of the lies of her life made it impossible for her to experience the freedom that God was offering. And yet she kept on pushing in. She kept on pressing in to God. She kept on pressing in to Jesus. And slowly, step by step, Jesus began to free her of the lies of the oppression of her life. You know, I think so often in our world, people have been fed these lies that they are not good enough, that they are not worthy, that we have to reach too far in order for Jesus to come down and make a difference in our lives. So often the world has been fed these lies that tell them that they are unlovable, that God couldn't possibly love them because of the things that they have done in their lives, because of their past, because of their oppression that is weighing them down. And so there's this moment where Jesus, he gets out of the boat and he lands on the shore. And this man who is sitting in the midst of all of this oppression, he is sitting in the midst of all of these lies of the things that he has been fed all of his life. He sees Jesus from afar. And he knows Jesus because he calls him by name. And so the only thing that he can think to do is to run, is to run towards Jesus. But remember, the only human interaction that this man has had for several years has been at the hands of people who are trying to shackle him and bind him. And so he looks at Jesus thinking, he is probably here to cause me further harm. He is going to cause me further pain. And so the only response that he can muster when he gets to the feet of Jesus is to yell, what do you want with me, 
Jesus, Son of the Most High God, what do you want with me? And so many of us have been asking that very question ourselves. We have been struggling with the things of our lives that we know are not of God. And we have been fighting so hard to relieve ourselves from these things, to fight for our own freedom, and it hasn't worked. And so we're sitting in the midst of God going, what do you want with me? What else can I do? And the world is in the same boat, that they are looking at their lives, and and when they see Jesus, the only response they can say is, what do you want with me? And it's in this moment that Jesus, he doesn't look at us by our baggage. He doesn't see us as people who are struggling with these addictions and oppression. He doesn't see us as people who struggle with the things in our past. And he didn't look at that man with all of his chains, with all of his baggage, with all of the scars from the cuts that he had caused in his life. Instead, he looks at us with compassion as people who were created with the imprint of God. And he reaches out and he touches us and he says, the only thing I have ever wanted is you. I have come down, I have bridged the distance If you think about the journey that Jesus is on to get to this man's life, he has gone through the storms on the sea. He has gone through so much to reach into the man's life in the tombs. And Jesus has has gone so far to come down into our lives to offer us freedom. And Jesus is looking at us and saying, I've done the work. The battle is mine and I have won. What I want for you is to walk with me in freedom. I want you to be free. And so he frees this man. And I love the description that Jesus gives of this man when he is free. Because remember, this man's life was plagued by chains and shackles cuts and scars and he was screaming naked in the streets and that was his life before Jesus entered into it and so look at verses 14 and 15 and read those with me starting in verse 14 it says those tending the pigs they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened and so the the townspeople who had put this man into the tomb they hear that Jesus is doing something in this man's life and they want to go out and see what is what's going on So it says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I love this image that this man is sitting there dressed. Because all throughout Scripture, the thing that you learn about Jesus is that when you begin to walk with Jesus, he begins to strip the things away that are not of him, and he clothes us with himself. And so this is a very tangible picture of Jesus stripping away this man's evil forces in his life and then clothing himself with Jesus. And he's sitting there, calm. And the townspeople, they look at him expecting 
to see this man as he was before Jesus, but they see him and he's no longer running and screaming and he's no longer naked or cutting himself and he's no longer chained and shackled. Instead, he is free. He is free. And it scares them. And I was asking myself all week, why did it scare these people? And you know, I think part of this fear that they were experiencing was just simply that they didn't know what to do with it. So often when people see the people of God walking in freedom and doing things that are so different from the way that the world does things. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, this church went out and we served thousands of people in our city. And there were so many people looking at us going, it's so strange that you would give up your entire Sunday in order to serve in this way. You would give up your money. You would give up your resources and time in order to bless the city in such a tangible way. And so often when people see the freedom that you are walking in, they don't really know what to do with it. It scares them a little bit because it's so different. It's so unique. And so I love this moment because these people who are afraid, they'd asked Jesus to leave. And so Jesus is getting ready to go in the boat to cross back over the sea. And this man finds out about it, the man who is freed from the demons, and he runs to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And of course, we would expect Jesus to say, yes, of course, get in the boat, follow me, let's go. But Jesus doesn't respond that way because, see, he's thinking two steps ahead. He knew that he was going to come and free this man from, from the evil forces of his life. And he knew that the townspeople were going to be scared and they were going to ask him to leave. And so the thing that Jesus does is he, he never leaves people without hope. Remember, Jesus' job in this world is to come down and offer humanity freedom. And so Jesus looks at the man and he says, no, you cannot come with me, but instead I want you to stay here and I want you to tell the people in your family and your friends and anybody else who will hear the good things that Jesus has done for you. Tell them about all of the amazing things that I have done to free you. And so this man, he begins to proclaim to anybody who will hear and I love the way that the people respond because they respond in amazement and wonder. So this is one of those stories that I just love so much because Jesus enters into one man's life and he offers this one man freedom and because of that one man's freedom, thousands of people begin to experience the love and the joy and the freedom that Jesus is offering them. And so the disciples, they get to, they're seeing this taking place and they get to experience Jesus' freedom. The, the man experiences freedom, and the townspeople experience freedom, and everybody else that he is talking to experience the freedom and the love that Jesus is offering them because Jesus took the time to come into this one man's life and relieve him and deliver him from the oppression that he was experiencing. And so my question is, what do we do with this story? What do we do with this very tangibly? And I think the first thing that we do, there's three things. The first thing that we do is we try and find ourselves in the story. Maybe you're this man who is completely oppressed, who is completely just saturated with all of this addiction and struggle. 
and you need Jesus to come into your life and free you. And if that's the case, we want to pray with you. There'll be people at the Respond banner when we take communion. There's going to be people all around who want to pray with you and walk with you in that struggle, in that journey. Maybe you find yourself like the disciples who believe in Jesus, and yet there is fear in you that is holding you back from fully experiencing the mission of God. And my challenge to you is to take one step closer into Jesus, one step further, one step further, one step further, one step at a time further into the mission of Jesus and allow him to relieve the fear in you and allow your story to reach millions. And maybe you find yourself in the story of the townspeople and you see the freedom that the people of God have. You don't know what to do with it. And my challenge to you is to just trust trust that Jesus wants the best life possible for you. So in a minute, we're going to take communion. I'm going to pray for us. Warren is going to come back up here and lead worship for us some more. And as you're taking communion, there's communion on the bars and the communion on the table. And I want you to get in groups and I want you to begin to ask each other these questions. Where do I find myself in this story? And then pray with each other. That prayer that Dave was praying this morning, or earlier, Lord, search my heart. Find the places of oppression that are within me and help me to be relieved and deliver me from those things. And then ask yourself and ask each other where and who needs to hear of the story of Jesus in your life because it will change people's lives. Let's pray.